a podcast by Warhorse Partners, supporting the move forward in investment management. Good day. It's Thursday, the 16th of April. I'm Piers Curry, broadcasting from London. I'm a former director of the Queen Elizabeth II Garden in New York City, with a career working in asset management. I'm joined by British academic Dr. Hugo Slim from Oxford University and Asma Awan, International Red Cross, an economics and security advisor. Both have long careers uh, internationally looking and operating in countries in crisis, but they're also now recovering from the coronavirus disease in London. Hugo, if I can start with you, how prepare our governments and nations for this particular crisis? I think a lot of Western governments and, and rich world governments have spent the last 20 years really um, preparing for a major security terrorist crisis of some kind. So they've certainly been preparing, but I'm not sure they've been preparing well enough for a major pandemic. And I think that's what we're seeing. But in the rich world, certainly they have what's needed. They have a lot of information systems. They have a lot of robust health systems. They have a lot of expertise and knowledge and a lot of money. And I think what we have seen in the last few weeks is that even if they don't have not been preparing well enough for these, they have been able to leverage their strong resources very fast in the last few weeks. Probably a bit slow, but because they were not preparing, but they're getting there now. In the poorer world, the, the paradox is that they're constantly prepared for these. They live with pandemics and epidemics. The last pandemic was the HIV AIDS pandemic, which hit Africa, Asia very hard. And that was a way of life. And in many countries, infectious diseases are a way of life. So culturally and psychologically, these poorer uh, societies are more prepared they're more accustomed and used to living and dying in emergencies like this, but they don't have the systems. They don't have the wealth of resources, expertise, infrastructure to manage. Is democracy an advantage here? Well, there's a, there's a big debate about whether authoritarian or democratic liberal governments deal better with these kind of big emergencies. I, I think that the jury is slightly out. I think authoritarian Governments, they tend to have peoples, if we're thinking of China, Singapore, other parts of Asia, Korea, perhaps they have more a deeper tradition of top-down government and a much deeper tradition of collectivist identity, doing, you know, the individuals submitting their lives to the greater good of the, the whole community. I think that can be an advantage. But democracies have other kind of advantages. Certainly, they tend to be more open and honest about the problem more quickly. They can still mobilize, as we're seeing around us in the UK today, they can mobilize society to act more collectively in the interests of the common good. So it's, it's hard to say, but the, the lessons really from good pandemic and epidemic management in the poor world are, the first is honesty. And we saw this with the HIV campaign, countries which were immediately honest and said, we have a problem. It's about sexual transmission. We've got to deal with it. They worked better. They responded better. Those that suppressed it, denied it, didn't. And so that honesty is a key necessity in good epidemic pandemic management. So is resilience. You need to encourage communities to take on extra burdens, to work together. And community mobilization is, is, is a crucial ingredient to success. And we're seeing that around us today too. Is that increased UK skepticism in the news flow? I think the truth is actually on, you know, we, we talked earlier about preparedness. I, I don't think 
either the US government or, or particularly the UK government got the problem quick enough. I think they thought it would be like the SARS epidemic, you know, 10, whenever it was years ago, which was contained in Asia very effectively. And I think they expected this one to be contained. This is more contagious than SARS. And I think they weren't expecting that. And I think they were, they were slow in recognizing the problem. Once they did, they were honest with the population, I think. Asma, how did you manage in lockdown? We were actually in Oxford um, a week before uh, the symptoms actually started to show up. I mean, for me, it was just a mild fever and I was absolutely frightened because of all the built up of what was ahead of us, you know. And um, then um, um, we had to come back but uh, because we had to replan everything. We had to come back to London uh, in two days. And here, when we got back here, first few days, I had a mild fever and then the cough um, and then of course my respiration really uh, got affected uh, quite severely. I still have, I'm, I'm on day 22 and I still have breathing problems. So yeah, I mean, uh, for me, a lot of it was the fear of, of what will happen. Will I survive or not naturally as a human being? Although I have worked on front lines and I've had to counter um, much worse uh, risks and threats in my life, but this felt like re real. And uh, knowing the, the, the death rate and how quickly people are dying, unfortunately, within days, two or three days. I have not seen any other epidemic apart from cholera where people died quite quickly within uh, 48 hours or, or 24 hours other than this virus, uh, which is very frightening to me. So this this is what where we are. And today I'm still not recovered. I'm still in the recovery phase um, and was much more worried about Hugo as well because Hugo's got um, uh, asthma and respiratory problems, but he's come through it and I'm still struggling. That's where we are. So is this an ageist disease targeting the elderly? Absolutely. I mean, they're much more vulnerable um, and also any underlying conditions that you might have, you know, including cardiac issues um, or diabetes or respiratory issues and of course you're a lot more vulnerable but what we're looking at um, Piers is that even the young people are really dying fairly quickly um, those I mean of course in terms of stats higher probably proportion today is of people who are older than probably 50 or 60 or, or a lot more older but uh, younger people are also dying and uh, and a lot of uh, uh, my main concern is for the medical staff, really, um, health staff, how protected they are, how exposed they are to the risks. And of course, the, the very major concern, which I, I also share with others, is, is not being able to be tested. I mean, we were not tested. We don't know where we are today, whether we are immune or not, and how much can we transfer to others. So medical staff, for me, is, is very important that they are given a priority to be tested. The UK has mobilised volunteers, but in other countries, there isn't even a national health system, is there? That is absolutely correct. I mean, they have absolutely no infrastructure. We are talking about countries, I mean, where I've worked and where I come from in my own country in Pakistan, the concerns are the lack of infrastructure in Africa, a large part of it where you have uh, Ebola. I mean, 
Today, I read that in Congo, they have again uh, Ebola cases and as well as uh, Corona all over the country. How disastrous it's going to be. I cannot even begin to imagine because they have no resources, no infrastructure, no equipment, no transportation, no roads. So can you just imagine you're talking about referrals to via ambulance to the hospitals, let alone ambulances, there are no roads. So, I mean, what I'm trying to say is that the gravity of this uh, virus um, in in those countries, I mean, the consequences are going to be much, much more dire. Uh, and the death rate, which, as Hugo said earlier on, um, death is very familiar. Uh, people have this cultural understanding that they will die. And they have died, so many, hundreds of them in many, many epidemics, several epidemics in the past. So it's it's a given that people will die, but the scale of mortality is going to be much higher. No one's talking about conflict-affected countries and, and the, the consequences of virus, coronavirus as yet. People are more focused on Europe, Canada, US, South Korea, New Zealand, uh, Finland, and all these countries. But uh, as you said rightly, they have absolutely no structure, no infrastructure to support the response. Are different ethnic groups especially vulnerable? Yes, absolutely. I mean, like you have these Shudar and Kashtriyas and, you know, the untouchables. They, there are lots of ethnic groups and tribes in, in not only in India, but also in Pakistan, in Afghanistan. So, so they are already isolated. They are already much more vulnerable. They do not have uh, access to basic services already. I mean, they, they are the last ones to, to, to benefit from uh, basic services. And of course, their wealth ranking, you know, in that region, uh, poverty and wealth ranking is a lot more different, as you know, from Europe and the South. And so, so of course, you're absolutely right. They're a lot more vulnerable. Um, uh, but what is happening, Piers, on the bright side is that communities are doing a lot. Community uh, engagement, community mobilization, as as uh, Hugo was saying, uh, we have a culture of charity in Islam. In, in my country, for example, a lot of people, individuals, are helping people in terms of food uh, and relief. So I'm not talking about the, the virus and the consequences and health service. I'm talking about the relief and food and the basic needs and access to the basic health services. So people, individuals are collecting and preparing rations and helping out communities in their own neighborhoods. But of course, these people have to be kept in mind, as you said, uh, how we can reach out to these people. It's incredible what I've seen in the past two weeks uh, happening in my country, in Pakistan, and how state is a lot more passive than individuals and communities who are coming together to help people. You know, because that is also another factor which we we tend to uh, ignore, that our countries are much poorer, and people on daily wages are really in, in the worst of situation and they need uh, economic help as well and food to survive. So that's another part uh, that in the UK probably is uh, uh, in better position to, to address uh, than our parts of the country. Hugo, what are the future economic consequences? Well, I think everyone's rightly realizing now that um, this is an economic emergency. And it's a sort of health crisis and a medical crisis, which is going to run and run for a year or so, but it's going to have a very deep 
and long economic tail, probably. So I think we need to really understand it as, a, as an economic crisis above all now. And we know that in our own individual lives, all of us now. But if we think of the poor world, there's going to be a huge um, tipping back of people into poverty. I mean, current estimates from the World Bank and Oxfam and people are expecting this crisis, its lockdown, its financial cliff edge, to put about half a billion people back under the poverty line across the world, largely Asia and sub-Saharan Africa, but also in North America and parts of the UK and Europe. So that's really important to understand. And of course, the other big thing is, you know, we've had very good, swift financial economic policies here in the UK, big funds available, the idea of furloughing coming into play. But you know, if you look at a, a continent like Africa and a lot of the big cities around the world, probably 80% of people are in the informal sector. They're not salaried employees. They're what we call here the gig economy. They get up every day and they have to sell something in the street or find a job for that day to get a daily wage. Now, those people are hugely vulnerable to this, to the survival in the short term. As Asma said, they're going to need food relief, whatever and then to job recovery in the medium and long term. So I'm afraid we can expect a major economic reversal in much of the poor world. The impact will become of the economic downturn, not then the disease. That's absolutely right. The, the key phrase there is what they call the social determinants of health. And those things that make you are socially and economically driven, like, you know, bad food, bad sanitation, lack of education, lack of income, lack of opportunity. All these things mean, as you say, you're more likely to get ill. And, you know, that means the, as you say, the ordinary caseload of disease is going to increase alongside an increasing caseload from COVID-19. So how are the other countries, uh, not the UK, then actually handling this, say Spain, France, Italy? Yes, sure. Um, it's, it's a very important question because I think we are all learning from uh, how countries have responded in their own context, especially their national response system. Earlier on in the conversation, Hugo made a very important point on preparedness, how prepared we are to respond to the pandemics. Uh, to me, it was a, a very big learning how unprepared we were. <laughs> Even in Europe, we were so unprepared to respond to this pandemic. I mean, looking at countries who've, who've done well for what we hear, what we read in media is, is uh, Germany is amongst one of those countries, Finland, New Zealand, and even South Korea. And, and Three of these countries, I have to say, they were all female leaders, women leaders. It's probably a coincidence, but it seems that they had very clear policies. They obviously had good systems to counter this emergency. They also, this, this virus particularly required very good equipment such as ventilators, etc. They were, Germany it was very well equipped, it seems. And, uh, and the best of all is the decision-making on uh, lockdown and distancing. I think uh, New Zealand was exemplary in that Germany as well. Hugo earlier on talked about authoritarianism and how, you know, uh, sort of the state has to be at this point, even compromising economic consequences a little bit uh, or bearing those economic consequences. But life is more important here. So, so to me, lockdown, decision on lockdown is very, I'm, I'm sorry, I will uh, disagree with Hugo on the UK's decision and UK government's decision on lockdown and how uh, delayed it was. It should have been 
should have been taken uh, earlier on, uh, not because they were gauging what was going on. In China, it started to happen in January and, and expansion when, you know, transmission was quite quick. So lockdown decision was very important in all these three or four countries. We have seen that the decisions were quick. Um, you have seen flattening of the curve. You've also seen that testing was done. It's very, very important to me that testing is done. Um, and and then, of course, um, China is obviously in a different phase now since the beginning, since the very onset of this virus. And they are now looking at not only the control, because, of course, they've reopened everything. Um, they've come out of the lockdown. But the second wave, uh, so, so that's the, the next concern. And South Korea as well, they have just yesterday stated that uh, some people, about 116 who were tested positive, have again been infected, uh, so reinfected. And they're talking about mutation and reactivation of virus, or is it being newly affected or not? So these are some of the concerns that all countries have to really observe very carefully. Even personally speaking, my uh, own GP, he, he said, you know, we're all learning from it. We don't know where we are going with it. But absolutely, as I said, uh, lockdown is, is very important and uh, individual behavioral practices and states and their decision-making policies, they all have contributed into a good mortality and morbidity rates and controls. Hugo, what is Oxford University trying to do to help in this area? So at Oxford, there are two main efforts going on. The first one is obviously medical. Research teams working flat out with others all around the world on two big things, really. First of all, trying to get the vaccine, so doing massive vaccine research and pilots all around the world, but also trying to look at drugs and doing a massive drug trial of different drugs already available and if and how they can help relieve or cure the virus, so retroviral drugs, etc. So vaccine development and major drug trials. But on the sort of government policy side of it, the Blavatnik School of Government, where I am, has also come up with what they're calling the stringency index, which is now being used by the FT in its updates every day. And this is um, comparing government policies across the world on lockdown and different policies of lockdown, how the economy is being affected in different ways and the stringency of those various lockdowns. And of course, as the situation changes, they will be tracking unlocking as well. And hopefully they will be tracking across the whole world. So not just the Western core, as Asma said, but across Africa, Asia, Latin America, Middle East and other places as the second, third wave develops. So I would urge your, your listeners to, to look at the stringency index at the Blavatnik School and, and keep an eye on it as it becomes increasingly global, analyzing lockdown and unlocking. So will that index do well for different types of economies? UK is quite service orientated. That's right. So, I mean, the Oxford system is, is choosing a number of key policies, you know, different ways of locking down different sectors of the economy being locked down for how long, when, exceptions, etc. So it's trying to come up with a comprehensive picture of, of both services and manufacturing and public sector. Um, and obviously, of course, informal sector will be key as it extends into Africa and Asia. Do you have any useful steers or tips about getting through coronavirus? Well, I, I think the, the, the key thing in a rather British way is, is don't panic at the first bit. I mean, I, I woke up 
in the middle of the night with a temperature of, you know, 38.8 or something with those amazing shakes and shivers and rigors that you get in a, in a fever like malaria or something. And so you realize you're in it. And I think the thing is then to say, right, I'm in it. Here we go. What's it going to be? And you won't really know for the first two or three days which way it's going to go. So you need to stay calm, drink masses of water. Actually, I was just quite happy with water in the early days. And Ribena and elderflower was quite nice later. And then at about day 15, a whiskey in the evening seemed to help. So the main thing is not to panic. And when you know, and we were lucky, it didn't rip us apart in in our lungs. Asthma had a worse time than me, but it, it didn't really develop there. Then around day six, day seven, people say, well, if, if, you know, where you are at day seven, if you're good, then you've probably come through it. But everyone seems to experience the symptoms in a rather different way, a sort of different palette of symptoms appear at different times. So don't be surprised if you don't get what your friend had. It it takes different shapes. Then the big thing is fatigue, because I, I had very bad pneumonia about 15 years ago, and it took about six months to get back up to speed after pneumonia in terms of really feeling on top form, really being able to use your body like you could before. It's very striking with Corona that you're very fatigued and tired afterwards. So, you know, it's a story of, well, for me anyway, of getting back to proper energy levels and having to rest. You know, you get up, you do a simple thing, you make breakfast, you organize a few things, you do a few things, and you're shattered. And, you know, for 10 days, you have to accept that and gradually build up again. So don't panic, see which way it's going, keep in touch with your doctor, and an NHS or whatever, when you're going, if it turns a bad corner, move fast, get taken seriously. And if you're lucky, then just keep getting better and resting and um, rehydrating and doing a bit more every day. Dr. Hugo Slim, Asma Awan, thank you so much for sharing this with us. This is a podcast from warhorsepartners.com, supporting the move forward in investment management. Keep galloping on until the next time.